morning. It is great to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to, first of all, Matthew 19, and then also uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be in both uh, this morning. I think at almost every Christian wedding that I've been to, uh, you have heard, read a portion of 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, many of you, when you got married, someone along the way in that ceremony uh, actually read part of 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And uh, after that, you said your wedding vows. And uh, at your wedding, when you were giving those wedding vows, they started with I. You remember them? For some of you, it's been a while. But it started with I do. It didn't start with we do. It didn't start with uh, essentially I do as long as you do. It didn't start like that. It didn't end like that. You said for better or for worse, I do, regardless of what you do. Now, at least that's what your spouse thought you said that day. Um, now, for many of us, I mean, wh- who can actually remember those vows, right? It's, it's, it's been a while. We were just repeating words. We were just hoping not to mess up. And we were just trying to remember what uh, the pastor was saying in that moment. We didn't want to mess up at all. But uh, because they were so long ago, because we hardly remember them, I mean, can we really be held accountable to those words? I mean, Aren't those words just so high that, and, and, and lofty that most of us can't even come close to them anyway? And, 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 and what about all the stuff that has happened since then? I mean, there have been a lot of fights and resentment and anger and junk. And, and there's just a lot of stuff that has happened between then and now. What if my spouse isn't keeping up with her end of the deal? What if I don't even like my spouse anymore? (laughs) What do we do in in that situation? Um, I I think in this series, what I hope to remind you is that in marriage, forever means forever. When we said, I do, we were saying to our spouse that we were gonna commit to him or her and we were gonna love one another for our entire life. It's exactly why the Bible teaches us that marriage is actually a covenant, not a contract. See, contracts can be broken easily. Covenants cannot. And we've got to be reminded that God is actually the architect of marriage. Marriage wasn't invented by human beings or governments. It was God's idea. Uh, He created the whole deal in the first place. And so whether you're married today or maybe hope to be one day, if you're single, All of us need to understand really the foundation of what marriage is. We've got to be reminded of this and this next generation has to get get implanted this gospel-centered idea of what marriage is. And, and, And those of us who are married, we've got to be reminded of this as well. And so in Matthew 19, Jesus really outlines for us really what the the entire structure and foundation of marriage is all about. So let's start there and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 13. But it says this in verse 9. It says, and some Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Several things we learn here. The first thing that we see here in verse four is that he created two complementary genders for one another. He created male and female, right? And he is teaching us that in this male-female relationship, in this institution, covenantal bond of marriage, God is at the center. So marriage is a covenant between one man, one woman, and God. And so a lot of times we leave God out of the picture. We think that this is just a promise that I made to a woman or a promise that I made to, uh, you know, this man. But but God clearly tells us that this is a, a union between the two of us and God. And it requires a sacrificial love. It requires a love that that none of us have experienced uh, outside of really understanding the gospel and experiencing it from God himself. And so we, in this relationship, are told to do a couple of things. He tells us to, 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 first of all, that we are called to leave and cleave. And so we leave our mother and father. And so essentially what that means is that we we leave behind our dependency upon them, our, our, our leaning and loyalty to our parents, and we are leaning in and we are loyal and dependent to our spouse first and foremost. And so there's a leaving and cleaving. And so there's some young couples that argue about, well, let me just back up. It doesn't have to be young couples. How many couples have argued over time at in-law's house and this parent and this, you know, how much time are you going to spend at Christmas here and what night are we going? And um, yeah, we argue and we kind of get into that mode. It's complicated. We got to work through that, right? And a lot of that comes back to this leaving and cleaving and putting one another first in this relationship. So he says, leave and cleave. And then he also says that this is a permanent relationship. He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a lifelong commitment. And he gives us, really, um, he explains the, the, the criteria if someone is to get a divorce. There, there, there's really only two ways that that is permissible by God. And he says, except for sexual immorality. Outside of sexual immorality, and Paul goes on later to share with us that if an unbelieving spouse abandons you, let him go, let her go. And those are the two exceptions. Uh, outside of those two exceptions, we're called to um, understand marriage as a lifelong bond. Now, 
Even if your spouse actually does commit adultery, Jesus doesn't command you to get a divorce. He's essentially saying it's allowable in that case. And so, so we're, we're leaving, we're cleaving. We're seeing this as a permanent relationship. Forever means forever. Now, in the 80s and 90s, for the first time in America, um, people were getting divorces and it just became really common. It, it was happening prior to that, but, but really in the 80s and 90s, it was just you know, common. And one of the effects of, of widespread divorce in our country is that people just decided to start living together. You know, we, we can live together. And then if we you know, break up, breaking up is a lot easier than getting a divorce Let's just kind of kick the tires and make sure this thing is going to work. So, you know, people live together and they start asking the question in that scenario, is this relationship working for me? And as long as the relationship is working for me, great. But if it ends up not working out so great for me, I'm out, right? And so that's kind of the, the low level commitment that we began to see and of course, living together is, is unbiblical. Uh, living together um, assumes that you are sexually involved, right? And we see in the scripture that that is uh, sinful. It is not healthy for you. It's not healthy for your children. Sex before marriage is always harmful uh, to you specifically. In fact, the Bible says that sexual sin is unique in that you are committing sin against your own body. Why? Because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we see it as sinful. We see it as hurtful and harmful to the current relationship that you're in, but then also to future relationships that you will have are gonna be hindered by that involvement as well. And so our relationship in this uh, season of, of, of dating is crucial. Now, some of you, are, there's probably a group that you're, you're living together. And, and so I would challenge you to, to do it God's way. Anytime you do it, your way, it leads to unhealth. And most importantly, you, you don't have the blessing and hand of God and, and, and the favor of God upon you. In order to, to get the blessing of God, you've got to do it his way. And so the covenant of marriage, uh, in this covenant of marriage, God provides a way for us to experience what genuine love is and genuine commitment is. When you're saying, I do, you are making a lifelong commitment. Now, granted, None of us have a clue what it means. We just like each other when we get married. We liked each other when we started dating. But at some point in the relationship, we have to decide that we are actually going to love each other. Now, we know this intuitively. Uh, we think about this uh, idea of real love being permanent. Um, and it, we really get it when it comes to parenting. Because as a parent, I, I'm a parent of four kids, three teenagers, one 12-year-old it gets complicated. There's drama. When my kids do something, you know, disobedient or, or there's some, something, you know, that they do that is, is, is wrong. I've never once thought on the grounds of irreconcilable differences, <laughs> get out of my house. Okay, maybe I thought it, but I've never <laughs> said it, right? No, seriously, we get that as parents. I'm always gonna be their dad. That's never gonna change. I'm always gonna love them. That's never going to change. And so we, we get this as parents, but for some reason we have a hard time understanding this covenant bond that we make with a spouse. When you view marriage as a covenant, 
you realize finally that you've got to be willing to say, I do, not just on your wedding day, but really every year, really every month, really almost every day, we have to be willing to say, I do. This is a permanent relationship. Now, does that mean that we just got to suck it up, man? We just got to do this thing and it's going to be terrible for the rest of my life? No, it does not mean that. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is inviting us to understand a level of genuine love that none of us have experienced from another human. Not even our parents provided and can show the kind of love that you and I could share to our spouse. Our parents have to love us, right? So it is a choice now for me to love and discover love and to fall in love and to show love to my spouse. Love that's that's different than what our parents can actually give us. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you wanna flip over to that passage, Paul is, is talking to a church and they are using their gifts for their own selfish ambition and for their own good. Uh, and so Paul is essentially saying, can't use your gifts for your own purpose and just for benefiting yourself. You've got to understand that, that you're gifted and, 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 and God has uh, blessed you in ways so that you can love other people. And so that's the context. And for the next uh, two weeks, we're going to really walk through 1 Corinthians 13 and, and apply it specifically uh, to marriage. And so let's start here in verse one together. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, not, if I have all faith so as to uh, remove mountains, but not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So essentially what he's showing here in the first couple of verses is that gifts without love are useless. Gifts without love are useless. So he says, if I speak in the tongues of men, in other words, if, if you have the ability and gift to speak in multiple languages, and now some of you do, you can speak Spanish, you can speak English, this is an amazing gift. I don't know how people do that. I, 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 can, I can't think in two different languages. I don't know how people uh, learn that. I didn't do well in high school in Spanish. Um, but some of you have that gift and it's an amazing gift. I know people that can speak five, six different languages. It's incredible. What Paul is saying is, if you have this incredible gift, but you have not love, it's useless. He's saying, if you have this prophetic gifting, and, and that would be that, that you can share the word of God, you can teach the word of God, you, you're actually able to, to show people what God's word means. If you have this gift, it means nothing, he says, if you don't do it and have love and do it in love. He says, you can have faith that moves mountains. Now, we can all have faith. Everybody has the ability to have faith. But some people are given that spiritual gift of faith that just allows them to believe and, 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 and it's uh, this ability that surpasses um, most other people. 
But he says, even if you have the gift of this faith, as amazing as that is, it is useless if you do it or have that without love. He says, gifts without love are useless. Now, your wife, your husband had many gifts when you first started dating and, and they still have many gifts. And uh, for a lot of you, those gifts were attractive to you, right? They had the gift of, uh, of just this personality with charisma. And that was a gift that they had. You were attracted to that gift. They were good looking. They had a, a great figure. And man, you just, you just really appreciated, didn't you, man? You appreciated the gifting that God gave to your wife and, and uh, in a holy way, of course. And um, we appreciate the gift of maybe they were wealthy or maybe you had an inclination that they were going to be wealthy. And so that was a gifting that you appreciated. Maybe they were good at sports, whatever it was. They had gifts, you were attracted to those gifts, but these gifts are quickly overcome in marriage. In other words, uh, what we used to appreciate and what we used to be attracted to, sometimes we uh, very quickly and easily just um, don't appreciate those gifts anymore. We appreciated maybe wealth, but if you don't show your wife love, she's not gonna care how much money you make. If you don't show your husband love, he's not gonna care how beautiful you are, right? And so we get this, we understand that gifts without love are useless. Not only do we get over gifts, but sometimes those gifts that draw us together actually end up annoying us. Has that ever happened? He was so safe and just, you know, just, I, I, I just a calming presence in my life, yada, yada, yada. Now he's boring and I need some excitement, right? Uh, he was so funny and just outgoing and spontaneous. Now I don't need jokes, I need him to change a diaper, right? These are very practical needs that we have. And so gifts sometimes end up annoying us. All that to say, gifts without love are useless. Nobody really cares what you're good at if you're unable to show genuine love, right? Here's the next thing that he taught us in that section. He says, sacrifice without love is useless. Sacrifice without love is useless. In verse three, he says, if I surrender all I have and give it away. He says, if I give up my body to be burned. In other words, he's saying that if I sacrifice, then I'm showing love, but that's not the case. He says, look, you can surrender all your possessions. You can give away all of your money, but if you're donating that money and those gifts with wrong motives, without love, he says it is a useless sacrifice. You can actually sacrifice your body without love, but we think that doesn't make sense. Aren't all sacrifices loving? And the answer is actually no. Not all sacrifices are equal. Not all sacrifices show love. For example, if you sacrifice time with your money or time with your family so that you can work more, so that you can make more money, however, at the same time, that means you have to spend a lot of time at work and you don't spend a lot of time with your wife and you don't get to spend a lot of time with your kids and your wife is upset and she wants you home more. That's actually a selfish sacrifice. 
And so it's done under the guise of love, but it's, it's a selfish motive. We enjoy that, we want that. And we try to spin it to a spouse, but oftentimes they don't buy it and it leads to conflict. Maybe your struggle is that you think you're actually sacrificing and showing love, but if your spouse isn't seeing it and receiving it as love, then it's a selfish sacrifice. And we've got to actually begin to do some, um, some, some self-evaluation to get to the motive and the heart behind it. This is why we have to have God in our marriage. This is it. Uh, because we're so confused about what love is. We're gonna expect uh, people to love us for our gifts. And then we're gonna be surprised when they don't. We're gonna expect people to love us for our sacrifices, even when we're in our sacrificing, trying to convince them that this selfish sacrifice is actually for them. And when they don't, we're confused. We don't know what genuine love really is outside of pursuing God and knowing God. And so I would say it like this today. You have to learn to love because hate needs no lessons. You've got to learn to love. Love isn't natural, but hate is very natural. Animosity, bitterness, anger, hatred, criticism. No one has to teach you how to be bitter. Nobody had to teach you how to be a get backer. You, your sinful nature just automatically wanted to get people back. You were two years old, somebody took your toy, you punched them in the nose. Nobody taught me how to do that. Nobody taught you how to do that. That same inclination is with me today. Same as with you today as well. You've got to learn to love and love has to be taught. And maybe uh, that's why you're so frustrated in your relationship uh, today. Uh, we think early on in our dating, uh, it's love. We, we think that, oh man, you know, these feelings of, of, of just this fluttery feeling in my, you know, my stomach, I'm excited to see them. This, this idea uh, we assume is love, but, it, but, but that's not love. We, we know this surely. What you experience when you first start to like someone is infatuation. Right? That infatuation, that nervous feeling, that emotional uh, flirtatious kind of things in us. This is infatuations. Guys, guys see a girl, like, likes what he sees, likes to be around her, thinks this girl can make me happy. That's infatuation. Right? At some point, uh, we've got to realize that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? God uses that, those feelings to draw us and connect us together. Uh, but the feelings of infatuation begin to decrease over time. And if the decision to learn to love doesn't kick in at some point, you're gonna have a mess on your hands. And that's where some of you are at. You're at year five, six, seven, kids came in <clears throat> to the picture, money is tight, right? Maybe your kids are in, in, in high school now and the drama there, the, the, the busyness there, the financial struggles, you're just not seeing eye to eye. And you're thinking, man, we used to love each other. Now all this stuff has happened. We don't love each other. Really what you've got to see it, you've got to see is that the infatuation is gone, yes. Now you've got a critical decision to make. Will I decide 
to love my spouse. I liked her. We got married. I thought I was committing to love. But what we forgot is that love is a decision. Love is a decision. This idea from Hollywood and from music that that love is this like emotional thing that comes and goes and sometimes it just smacks you in the face and you just gotta go with the flow is a lie. That's not love. That's infatuation. Every single one of us, whether, whether you're, you're, you're dating or you are married, have a decision to make. Are you going to choose to love this person? It is not this cosmic feeling that hits some of us and doesn't hit others of us. And so what Paul is saying in this scripture is that the love of God is so interconnected with our love for people and especially our spouse. And so we've got to learn to love. And in marriage, God has given you freedom to, to, to choose who you want to get married to. Don't, don't rush past that, okay? Paul later says in 1 Corinthians that it's better not to get married because you have more time to serve God. Jesus in Matthew 19, he goes on and he's explaining that it's better if you don't get married, but that's a hard teaching and some people can't, can't accept that. If you wanna enjoy sexual pleasure and have kids, the only way to experience that in God's plan and purpose for your life is in marriage. If you choose to go that route, it is your choice. So God is, God is really loving. He's saying, it's gonna be difficult. He's given us fair warning. You don't have to get married. He's not even telling you who to get married to or what she should look like or, or any, anything like that. He's saying it's gonna be difficult. If you choose to do it, it's up to you. But if you decide to do it, if you decide to get married, uh, when you do that, you must learn to love and you must recognize that this is a covenant that you are making with your heavenly father. So, you cannot love God well unless you are loving your spouse well. So because it's a covenant, it is a, a spiritual bond. It is a, an emotional bond. Yes, a one flesh union is a physical bond, but a God-centered marriage will teach you how to love. If it's not a God-centered marriage, it'll teach you how to be selfish. It'll teach you how to get what you want. But a God-centered marriage, in other words, you're both running towards God. You wanna mature in your faith towards God. You love Jesus. You're seeking Jesus together. It will no doubt lead you on a path to actually love your spouse. And, and, and so marriage, really, if you think about it, marriage is like the weight room for love. So some of you like to go work out, you go to the gym, when you work out, there's a lot of um, uh, soreness. You're lifting heavy things. There's a lot of pain involved. There's a lot of exhaustion involved, right? And lifting weights physically to get stronger. Now, in marriage, we, we have an idea of what we think love is. But when we get married, we're really stepping into a different kind of weight room. Because it's in the weight room of marriage that you fuss and you fight and you pull and there's resistance and there's exhaustion and there's pain. But if you choose 
to love and to show love to your spouse and to be uh, loving towards your spouse, you will walk out of that relationship and you in fact will be stronger. You will feel better and you will finally experience genuine love together. It is a beautiful, it is a beautiful thing that God has given us. There is nothing like it that can lead us to genuine love. So what does it look like? Well, in verses four and following, he gives us the characteristics that we're all familiar with, but like we love to just like, oh, let's just read them and just kind of get through them. (laughs) We don't like to actually think about the implications. And by the way, uh, remember the New Testament was written written in the Greek language. And so every single one of these, um, what we would call adjectives, right, are actually verbs in the Greek uh, New Testament. So what that means is love, just remember that, love is always about action. It's not just about saying something, it's about action, right? So keep that in mind. Verse four, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Amen, we agree, let's pray and go home and eat. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Love is patient. Wow. That is a tough one. I think it's a tough one for many of us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, when you are impatient, you're putting the needs of yourself first. You're thinking of your schedule first. You're thinking of your needs first. Now, that's why we all need to pray for patience. I don't really know anyone who is naturally patient. Um, Kindness is the opposite of being harsh. Uh, harsh towards our spouse and, and saying mean things or being rude or being mean towards them. Your words matter. Words carry weight. And if we're hard-hearted towards our spouse, if we're unkind with our words, with our actions, we are not growing love. We are growing hate in our marriage. We're growing resentment in our marriage. And so we wanna grow love. And so he calls us to be patient. He calls us to be kind. Now, uh, this was kind of a short week for me because Easter was, was a long weekend. And, and so uh, I was kind of more under the gun to get ready for it today. And, and I was in my office and I was, I was studying. And, and I kid you not, the Lord was testing me because I was on verse four when my wife walked in and said, hey, can we talk? And under pressure and stress, what I wanted to say was, I am writing a sermon to teach people how to be patient. Get out of here. But I resisted, I thought it, I'll be honest. Um, it's funny, we, we get the opportunity to show patience to our spouse, probably on a regular basis, at least I do. And if you're like me, um, I'm just somebody who is on the go and I like to get things done and I have a long list of things I wanna get done and, and very limited amount of time to do it. And so I get into go mode and when I'm in go mode, man, I can, I, can, I, can, I can be very impatient. And so that's why with my wife, Micah, um, it is important that we recognize that growing our love is a team sport. So instead of her seeing me as an enemy who is impatient and she criticizes me for that, she helps me walk through that. And so we've, we, we have this statement or we have you know, this, this phrase. And so if I am in go mode and I am maybe you know, ignoring a, one of the kids or I'm you know, being unkind to her, you know, she'll lovingly just kind of put her hand on my knee and say, let's be careful right now. 
And I will tell you that about 50% of the time, it works. <laughs> but the same is true for her. That's just a statement. Let's be careful. It's just a statement that we say, and it has become part of our, our rhythm because it is part of everyday life where we annoy and have the opportunity to be unkind and to be impatient with each other. Why? Because marriage is a team sport. We've got to grow together. And so that's why marriage is the weight room of love because that's, that's, that's like benching 250 pounds, you know, in that moment. I have a choice to make. I can, I can, I can reject that loving, you know, nudge or I can push through it and I can take a deep breath and I can calm myself down. And that's something that you can learn. And that's something that we blow by. People call it emotional intelligence and there's books out on this, but it's really just spiritual maturity. That's what Jesus would call it. It, 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 would, it would be recognizing that your blood pressure is rising. It'd be recognizing that the beads of sweat are starting to come on your head and that your face is red and you're about to yell. And it's, it's having the Holy Spirit kind of tap you on the shoulder and say, whoa, let's be careful right here. And then it's taking a deep breath. Whew, love is patient. Love is kind. I'm gonna decide to love her in this moment. And then he says in verse four that love does not envy or boast. And so love isn't envious. In other words, it's not jealous. Instead, it rejoices when good things happen to the other person. Now being envious means that you want the best for your spouse. You want the best for this other person. And so when good things happen to him, when good things happen to her, you celebrate with them. You don't allow yourself to become jealous or envious, right? If you're harboring envy and jealousy towards your spouse, it's gonna come out in snide comments. It's gonna come out in passive aggressive comments. It's gonna come out with unkind, given the cold shoulder, right? And these are all immature, spiritually immature, unkind and rude ways of showing love to our spouse. And so he says boasting, love is not boastful. Right, it's not, it's not bragging. So people who would brag about their accomplishments, talk about their gifts, talk about their knowledge all the time, this is what he would say, it's, 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 it's not boastful. So he says love is not arrogant. In other words, it's not proud, right? And so if you're full of yourself, it's gonna be really hard to love someone else because you're busy loving yourself. And so you have to die to self. Now there's in your face arrogance, that you see in sports, this trash talking, I'm, you know, that, that we idolize and laugh at, um, even though it's ungodly. And then there's also more subtle ways, more acceptable ways of being arrogant. And those acceptable ways or subtle ways are when you consistently bring the conversation back to yourself in a group of people. Subtle ways of, of really just highlighting what you've accomplished and, and what you were doing. So kind of dominating that conversation. Those subtle ways of, of even, you know, even, even more subtle when you spend a lot of time talking about your woundedness and your sadness and all the terrible things that you have gone through. That's what we call self-pity. That is also prideful. So really self-pity 
and boasting are both forms of pride. One is pride in the heart of the weak and the other is pride in the heart of the strong. God says love does not brag, it is not arrogant. That is, it does not speak much about itself and it's not puffed up with its achievements and it's not too concerned with its hurts. Don't, don't miss that. Not to be arrogant means that you're not too puffed up with your achievements and you're not too overly concerned with your hurts. You've gotta be willing to forgive You've got to be willing to overlook wrongdoing in your life. Now, we're, we're not puffed up because we choose to be. We're puffed up because we have a sinful nature. And that's just who we are that we constantly have to wrestle with. And when the Holy Spirit is in our, in our spirit, he gives us the power and strength to be, become uh, uh, strong and, and to overcome these tendencies that we have. So the glory-loving, self-exalting, attention-seeking whining, pouting, self-pitying me has to die. This is what Jesus calls us to do. So here's the interesting thing when we talk about putting our spouse first. I put my spouse first when I focus on my sin first. So we often wanna talk about die to self and you know, I wanna put her first. What does she need? What does she need? And sometimes I, I put the focus on her and, 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 and what we really have to do is if I wanna really put her first, I've gotta put my sin first. In other words, I've gotta examine myself. I have to deal with my sin first. If I'm in a blame game and I'm pointing the finger and I'm arguing and I'm, I'm giving her you know, the, the, all the things that she's done that you know, wronged me over the years, I've got this list that I always go back to or whatever the list is for that week then I'm missing the point. I've got to put my sin first. I've got to recognize my fallen nature. I've got to stop blaming. I've got to put my sin first instead of focusing on her failures. And in order to put her first, I have to focus first on my sin. If you're just gonna accept yourself for who you are, if you're just gonna accept who you are, you are actually refusing to change yourself in order to follow Jesus. Right, And so when we follow Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, we want you to change us. You don't say, Jesus, I'm following you and then ask him to follow you around. You're saying, I'm following you, which means I'm committed to being changed by him. So some of us get into this routine of an argument. Stop trying to change me. Don't change me. And it's like God is saying, that's what you signed up for. You signed up to walk into the weight room, pick up some weight and start lifting, stop pouting and trust me. Take me at my word. We sang about it a minute ago. Take me at my word. When you choose to love your spouse and follow me, great things will begin to happen. So how do we get there? What do we do? I wanna close with a challenge for you to do two things. The first thing is this. I wanna encourage you to resolve to be the best spouse for your mate. In other words, make a decision. Make a resolved decision. I'm gonna stand in this position. I'm going to work on myself. I'm gonna work on myself. I'm gonna stop pointing the finger. I'm gonna stop blaming. I'm gonna stop arguing. And I'm going to put my sin first. I'm gonna focus on my sin and I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna say, 
I am sorry for the discord, the anger, whatever the issues are that I have, uh, have contributed that have led to the problems in our marriage. I am sorry for what I have done. I've done this and I am, I'm seeking your forgiveness. Now I know what you do because I do it too. When I say I'm sorry, I expect a sorry to come back. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? And it's like, if I have to tell him to apologize to me, then it doesn't count, right? Have you ever said that? What are we doing when we think in that way? We're putting us first. We haven't resolved to do the right thing. You see, in order to become spiritually mature, you have to act independently, no matter what the response is from your spouse. You have to decide, you have to be resolved to be the very best spouse for your mate. And that means apologizing, whether or not an apology is reciprocated or not. You're gonna do the right thing, right? You're gonna act independently. You're gonna say, I'm sorry for the ways that I've contributed to these issues. Whether, whether that is like a really kind of intense discussion that happens tonight, or whether, you know, you're writing a sermon and your wife interrupts you and you're impatient. So in that situation or in a bigger conversation, there's a consistency where you are quick to apologize for the wrongdoing that you've recognized and that she recognizes in your life. Here's the second thing that we must do. Make a decision to rebuild and bring love into your marriage, right? We've got to rebuild this thing. We've got to rebuild it. It takes, it takes effort. It takes prayer. It takes mentors. It takes you dying to yourself, restoring and rebuilding that marriage essentially means that you are willing to work hard at loving your spouse. It means that forever means forever. And I'm not just stuck with you. God put us together so that we could experience genuine love. You're not going to have the opportunity to find it like anywhere else outside of that relationship. That is the relationship. And what if, what if the two of you said, you know, we're gonna resolve forever means forever. We're gonna be the best spouse we can, regardless of how they respond or what they say. I'm gonna do my part and I'm gonna rebuild this thing and I'm gonna bring love into this marriage. Just imagine what your marriage could look like. Imagine what your marriage could look like if you resolved to do this and you, you decided to rebuild this marriage. See, the truth is you can have an incredible life-giving marriage. You really can. God hasn't kept it as a secret to try to keep it from you. He's not trying to hide the path to maturity. You can learn how to love, but you have to love God first and you've got to want to please Him. And if that's your motivation, then he'll take you there. He'll get you there. You've got to take him at his word. You've got to follow and trust him in that process. And you can do this. You can learn to love. Isn't that exciting? It's exciting to know that what you're going through can actually change. That's hopeful because the tomb is empty, right? And Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit of God 
to change your heart and to show you what love is. Let's go do it today. Let's start it today. Let's change our marriage today. God can do it. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I pray that you bless this sermon series. I pray, God, that you will honor the efforts of every person here today that tries to have some important conversations. I pray that you would help us walk through those patiently and with kindness. Help us to walk in love for single people in the room. Lord, I, I pray that the, this, is, this is what they aspire to find. And the Lord, that, that in this moment, what they do is they, they resolve to become the most mature follower of Christ they can become today. And by them resolving today and honoring God in relationships today and honoring their body today, they are in fact creating a healthy marriage that they're gonna experience whenever you provide that spouse. But that weight room starts today for all of us, because we all need help. And so Lord, teach us to love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Foothills Church. If you made a decision to follow Christ while listening today, or if you have some more questions about what that looks like, then let us know. You can text FC Decision to 97000, or you can head over to foothillschurch.com slash decision. We hope you have a great week.